This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Old Brewery, a podcast brought to you by the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture at the University of Aberdeen, aimed to highlight the work of uh, students and staff here at the school. My name is Ian Gross, a PhD research student in creative writing, and I'm co-hosting today with, with Jane Hughes, who was a guest on a previous episode. Welcome back, Jane. Hi, Ian. Our guest today is Eden Unger-Bowditch, who's currently working on a PhD in creative writing with the University of Aberdeen, and she's joining us from New England in the United States. Eden's first degree was in rhetoric from the University of California. She and her husband were in a band, signed to A&M Records and toured and recorded music together before settling in Baltimore, where Eden worked as a journalist. The family moved to Cairo, Egypt, and Eden did a master's in comparative literature at the American University there and went on to teach in the Department of Rhetoric and Composition. Eden is the author of the award-winning Young Inventors Guild trilogy for young adults. As part of her PhD, she's writing a novel, provisionally entitled 250 Years at Home. The title of her PhD thesis is Fields of Meaning, The Singular Nature of Ambiguity in the Literary Text. Hi, Eden. It's so great that you can join us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I love this podcast. Thanks very much. How's the the weather with you? Well, I... I told Jane this morning we'd had a dusting of snow, but it's a bit more than that, and it's well below zero. Yeah, it's about minus five here. Um, too cold for me, but, um, <laughs> but it, is what it is, as they say. Well, okay, so we thought, Eden, the, the best way to, to introduce your work would be to start with a short reading from the, right at the beginning of, of your novel. Did you want, do you want to go ahead with that? I will. My house has ghosts, not the kind that rattle chains or moan in the attic. They do not groan from beneath the bed. They do not shake things from the shelves in the cupboard or hurl themselves at windows in the night. But these ghosts are very real. I can feel them. I can see the signs of their presence in the woodwork, in the corners of rooms, in the details of my home. I've come to understand how precious their presence is. I've come to hold dear what they left behind, even if what they left means something different to me that could not possibly be what it meant to them. And I know that by stepping across the threshold and calling this house my home, I am destined to join the ranks. Wow, thanks, Eden. That's so evocative. I I really love that that sense of haunting that you you bring in. And that's the opening passage to the novel, is that right? Yes, I know it's not uh, a literal haunting, uh, but I wondered if that idea of the, you know that spectrality that you brought in, if the, if that's a feature of the novel, and 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 if so, how do you develop that as 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 you go through it as as the novel progresses? Well, in some way, you know, we think of the past being the thing that haunts us in the present, mm-hmm. but um, in the arguing of the necessity of ambiguity in literature. The idea that, that the present can change the past and can haunt the past in a way. It, the idea that ghosts that live in our home, that we are also living in, that we 
change the home that we live in and therefore change meaning of that home. Mm -hmm. The idea of haunting kind of goes both ways, from the present to the past and the past to the present. Yeah, I noticed just in your notes about your thesis, you say that the present changes the past because history is not simply a, a list of events, which I really like. No, it's not stagnant. And, you know, heroes, you know, we, we watch in the world as we tear down statues mm. of former mm -hmm. heroes who are now villains. And we are, as we change our perception of things that happen and whether we better understand them or differently understand them or the meaning changes, it, it's not that it didn't mean that at one time. We can have concurrent meanings and mm. changes of perception, and therefore we, we can, in the present, change the past. T.S. Eliot mm -hmm. was, was really big on, so on that kind it's of It's that yeah. idea of re reinterpreting the past and the past of the house that uh, is, is, is how you introduce the idea of haunting then. Yes, well, it, and the house is something that stays throughout, but it it evolves. Yeah, I was going to say that. It means something the, different. The text is very kind of grounded in the house. It's obviously the thing that holds everything else in the book together, really. And I was wondering um, if it's based on a real house. And when you say my house has ghosts at the beginning, who is that first person narrator? So loads of questions. Is, a, is it, is it you? Great, <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing. A, a friend of mine in the publishing world once said to me, whatever you do, don't be confined by your own reality. Hmm. So I would say that the closer to the present and obviously that first chapter, which is in the present, kicking mm -hmm. off this excavation into the layers of the dwellers of the house, mm -hmm. was the most difficult because the first um, time I was writing it through, I kept imposing myself mm -hmm. in there. And, and I found that if I could just remove myself and have the narrator tell a very different story, it was much so better. So does that mean that the, the point of view of the narration, the viewpoint changes? Um, well, the, the first chapter is in first person, uh -huh. and the rest of the, the book, um, the novel, is not. It's in third, third person. person. Oh, okay. um, but in, you know, in the first chapter, the narrator it goes through various things that reinvent who she is, reinvent her perception of things, reinvent her relationship with her husband, her surroundings, and her burning desire to find out all these people who lived in this house before mm. her because oh, she's okay. sharing a house with strangers and it kind of drives her crazy. Right. <laughs> and then realizing that, you know, by knowing a name, by knowing a list of people, that, that's not going to tell her who lived there and what, what that house meant to them. So she... Um, and understanding that she's become part of them. Right, so she, she, does she delve into the history of the house and its occupants, this, the, the first person narrator that opens the novel? She, or is it like... Um, yes. And she, it's, sorry, go on, Eden. No, I was going to say, yes, she does um, investigate and she finds these remnants of people who left things mm -hmm. behind and, and altered things, the Latvian family that curved the ceilings, <laughs> the you know, things that, like she finds in the garden and in the walls, that as we read 
through, we be begin to excavate mm. what these things were and what they meant to the different people. It doesn't negate what they meant to later generations, but it changes how we perceive them as we learn more oh, about them. I love them. that. So it's the, the these traces that are left in the house, the echoes from the past are starting to change how that narrator starts to view her own place within within that within that uh, evolving history, I suppose, if mm -hmm. you like. Exactly. And so could, because it is a sort of excavation, as you say, a, a, a sort of drilling down through the layers of the house back through time. And the novel's structured that way, isn't it? It starts in the present and goes and goes back mm -hmm. rather than being yeah. uh, the usual kind of linear forward in time narrative. Then, so how, right. how I, I liked the idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. And I just wondered how much... Um, you know, how much research then you had to do? Is it a very he heavily research-based uh, undertaking, the novel? So much research. I mean, first of all, I love research. It's, it's like being a detective, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, excavating things myself. I love that. So every time I went into the old folios in the library, mm -hmm. the, the librarians just shook their heads like she's just <laughs> inventing reasons to have to look into these old books, you know. Um, and as a journalist, I was doing some project, and I did find these photos of our house from the 1860s. And at the time, we thought that our house had been built much later than the other houses, but this showed that it was there long before okay. the, the estate had become a public park. And it, so we figured they must have been caretakers in the house, uh, you know, in, the, in the estate, living in that house. And, yeah. As we began to reinterpret, you know, what we were seeing around us, you know, we it was our experience of it that changed, but in some way it changed the house mm -hmm. as well. So in the sense that, you know, a literary text is the vessel of of information and narrative, every reader affects that text mm -hmm. by interpreting it and experiencing it and giving something to it that they leave behind once they've read it oh, wow. in a way the house behaves that way it's a whole, whole additional layer isn't it it's not just what's on the page it's, it's what the reader's bringing to it as well absolutely you know, and we, we, we i gotta ask you whenever i meet someone who's already successful as a as a writer or in in, a, in their field i always want to know why they've decided to do a phd you're you're already a successful author with an award-winning young adult fiction trilogy but this this is this is quite different, I guess, and the novel is inter intertwined with your with your PhD. Well, I mean, it's successful. I'm not sure what that <laughs> means. I I kind of came sideways into the world of book writing. I thought oh, this would be interesting, and I had an idea for a young adult collection of mm. books, a trilogy. Mm -hmm. And a friend who was a young adult novelist, I was living in Cairo at the time said, oh, do you mind if I show my publisher? And the publisher said, I'd like to give you a deal. And I said, great. Amazing. And that was it. So I never had an agent. I never had anything. And would I have had a better deal? Would I have had a, you know, more? I don't know. Who knows? So but this, know, this novel, this, what, this, this novel is, is obviously part, it's intertwined with your, with your PhD thesis. Um, right. Well, so this is a book that I've been wanting to write for 20 oh. years. You know, this is a book that I've thought about. Mm. And the um, 
the later chapter, the, the very short chapter, Her Unforgivable Beauty, mm. actually was published as a short story. Ah. And people wrote um, the magazine and, and, and wanted to know more about it. And, you know, was it something based on history? And it made me wonder about, you know, the different people who lived in this in a house mm. in an old house and how we share it with with all the people who lived before and so this was sort of hanging you know been, somewhere in my mind waiting to, to be finish written. this book yeah. and exactly and then when i was working on my masters i the idea of ambiguity in literature, even as an undergraduate, it was something that really fascinated me, that, you know, we can have concurrent, conflicting interpretations of something that are valid. Mm -hmm. um, and that is important. That's what makes a literary text last through time, and it is compelling. And I remember reading in the Iliad that moment where Hector has to go to war and he's telling his telling Andromache you know she's like why that why don't you just hide under the table basically you know why do you have to be an idiot you know you're gonna die and he said well you know if I hide under the table I won't be the man that you love and I'll you'll never be able to look at me the same way and if I go and die at least you even enslaved will be you can walk with your head high and be the wife of a hero and that was I remember crying oh. <laughs> reading that just so powerful and human and thousands of years old and if something can still reach us that humanity um, and we can each interpret it differently because of who we are and what we bring to the mm. text mm -hmm. and I suppose it encourages you know, that's engagement that way doesn't it and you say the reading of the novel mm. shows the essential role of ambiguity for the unfolding narratives of text and personal um, history and I like the way that the, the the house itself acts like a metaphor for the text. Is that is that right? Yes. And going back to your this idea of ambiguity, and, and you've sort of you've already answered a couple of our questions. I think actually just saying that you know mm. where, where where did that idea come from, and mm -hmm. you know why is it important? Um, which we can go back to, I think. But um, I wondered if uh, when you started thinking about ambiguity and developing your, your own thoughts around it, who did you turn to or who have you drawn from to help you to develop that, that idea mm. that in, in your thesis? Um, there are a few um, authors. And again, it's funny because, you know, Derek Atteridge's Singularity of Literature was really inspirational and I read it in grad school and okay. was blown away like there is something that happens a singularity in a literary text in the reading and the engagement of a literary text or in a work of art or in a piece of music that is particularly unique to everything in the world that engagement that individual thing that happens and you know he's a Derrida scholar and, and considered deconstructionist mm -hmm. and Yet what he's saying um, plays into this, it, it plays into the, like what Wolfgang Isser's The Act of Reading says to me. And Louise Rosenblatt, who is an American professor at um, Columbia, uh, wrote about um, 
the importance of, of how we perceive, um, she called efferent readings, which are readings that are very linear, that we are trying to receive information from, mm -hmm. and then aesthetic readings, which are broader and more engaged in the, in the what is happening in the text itself. And you can do an efferent reading of a poem by like counting the number of um, you know measures or, or the rhythm or the, you know style, and, you, and mm. you can do an aesthetic reading of something else. Mm -hmm. You know that it's it's the kind of engagement. All these, um, Martha Nussbaum as well, who is a philosopher and legal scholar, her book Poetic Justice argues for the engagement in, in a just society with, with literature. And, and I believe that as part of a just society, we need to be able to read other voices mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. minds and other experiences to build empathy and, and build but, but why do you think um, ambiguity is kind of uh, so important f for that to that process to that engagement with literature what, what, what is it about ambiguity do you think that uh, it's well it's so important well I think that I'm calling it ambiguity because I think that's the closest thing to what um, is you know Derek Atteridge's singularity of literature. It's, you know, everyone like, what is a literary text? Mm -hmm. You know, what defines a literary text? You know, we're all in search of that answer. And I think that a hallmark element of the literary text is an openness. Mm. Um, Umberto Eco has a book called The Open Work. Mm. And for him, and in fact, he, this is another very inspirational thing. I... I I disagree with some of the things he says because he really feels like the more abstract something and the more open, the more amb ambiguity is allowed to occur. Where I, I disagree. I think we can interpret all manners of literary texts mm. and art. And I mean, look at the Mona Lisa. That's mm. you know, we we can look at it, and everyone has some different emotive response to it. Um, but he he talked of of lines of meaning right? in the same way that Rosenblatt talked about the efferent reading, right? You were, you were reading something to receive a piece of information. You don't want ambiguity mm -hmm. there. And most texts, mm -hmm. you don't want ambiguity. You don't want to wonder whether when you read the clock yeah. or the, read the weather report, whether, you know, that's accurate or whether they mean here or there. Whereas um, in... Fields of Connotative Meaning is, is and that and the title of my mm -hmm. thesis comes from Echo, mm. um, is, is what we find in literary texts right. and what we find in a more open. I like work. that word open, you know, the, there's an intentional ambiguity which, which allows for an openness of interpretation, I guess, rather than, you know, it just being intentionally vague or, um, you mm. know, obscure. It really draws the, the reader in, doesn't it? Right, I mean, they're problematic ambiguity. Yeah. We can have yeah. problematic ambiguity. That's um, the, When I was a teenager and I was doing fabricated metal sculpture, and we had a sculpture show, and I had this piece that I did with this sort of DNA shape. 
coming up, and, and I called it Everyone's Tattoo. And this little old lady came up to me and said, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and she showed me her arm, and she had, uh, you know, from the concentration uh -huh. camps, a tattoo on her arm. And I had never thought of that. But she wasn't wrong. Mm. No. Like her own tattoo, in a sense, is everybody's. Humanity's. Right. So she, she mm. yeah, mm -hmm. for her, that, that was the meaning of it. And she was not wrong. And so my meaning, what I felt, and think of the times that you've written something and you've gone back to look at it and it means something different to you. Yeah, so it's funny. When you, you know, when you, I feel like in some way... You hear somebody else reading out your stuff, isn't it? And you hear, you hear yeah. some stuff comes out of it that you, you didn't know was there. Yeah, or if you ever get feedback, you know, on a piece of exactly. writing and yeah. surprising things come up that you, you didn't realize were, were present when you were writing it. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think that, you know, we look at things like author's intention as a way to decipher the meaning of something, but what does that even mean? So many times we intend to write something and something comes up very different than, than that intention. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that intention yeah. doesn't have anything to do with what's on the it's page. one of the things I really enjoy about And then about we the go process. back and read it. Yes. <laughs> and I think in some way that uh, uh, as authors, we are the first reader. Yeah. You know, we're, we become, mm -hmm. we join the ranks of readers right. as we reread our own work. I, I wanted to ask you, because um, you've been teaching a course uh, called How Do We Know It Is True? And I know that you you taught mm -hmm. it um, at the American University in Cairo and also at Long Island University. And Ian and I were, mm -hmm. were both saying it sounds like a course we'd absolutely love to do if you ever put yeah, it online definitely. or even maybe even bring it to Aberdeen University. And um, from there, I started thinking, well, I want can I I want to know why you've chosen to do your PhD with Aberdeen University? Is is there a Scottish connection? Um, there is, at first, you know, one of my dearest friends from Cairo, who is Scottish and was living in Aberdeen, um, I looked at people at University of London. We lived in London when we were kids, and I thought that might be a good place to go. And I was really looking for somebody who could do voices and, and understand, like, the shift in time, since this is a novel that really requires that. And Helen Lynch is just so amazing. Mm -hmm with that and um and so she i felt like was the person i really wanted to work mm -hmm. with uh in addition to that the, the book takes place it was inspired by our house which is on an estate that was found that that was the estate of george buchanan who was from um you know outside of edinburgh mm -hmm and fa had family up north. And his, his gra great-grandson founded Aberdeen, Maryland in, in the U.S. Oh. And because their cousin was the fourth Earl of Aberdeen. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a very strong connection. And, and Buchanan's family um, was originally from the Highlands. And in like 1716 or something, he... Uh, he was, in 1729, he was one of the founders of Baltimore City. Okay. So there was a very strong connection to Aberdeen and this estate and following the, you know, the, there was always a Scottish shepherd. Yeah. It was a bit uh, of a pull for shepherd. you, in a sense. 
Yeah. <laughs> or, or somebody pointing the way, absolutely. maybe. The ghost of Buchanan exactly. pointing the way. The name of the park is Druid Hill Park, which was inspired by, um, you know, the Druid history yeah. in Scotland. Well, given the nature of that course and, and the, um, you know, the main, the main thrust of your thesis on ambiguity, and, and I, I wondered if you could talk a bit more about how perhaps uh, the your teaching practice and your writing practice might uh, inform one another, or, or if they do, or if they're quite separate, or, do, you know, do you come away from teaching a class and thinking about your, your thesis and vice versa? Well, when I teach creative writing, I've, it's much closer to my own work because I try to get people to like mine their own creative mm -hmm. space and, and write. The, the course that you mentioned, How Do We Know Is True, it's an interesting thing, right? We're just talking about ambiguity and then we're talking mm -hmm. about how do we know when something is mm -hmm. true. And we want to note that there is ambiguity with perspective but there are certain things that aren't ambiguous. And we live in a time where there's been a real confusion yeah. between the two. Yeah, it's and it's allowed for a lot of non-truths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When some, something's been deliberately yeah. obscured, which is very relevant exactly. just now. And yeah, that's a completely different from the ambiguity that you're talking about. So the course, which I do think I'd be happy to share with you, and we can look at and, uh, and I'd like to update the readings. Um, Great. I divide into, you know, the, the first part is truth on trial, where we look at witness testimony and memory, which is notoriously mm -hmm. faulty. Mm -hmm. And the second part is sharing the truth. How do we impart things that we feel are very important and true and use the rhetoric that allows somebody else to perceive it? And how do we know when we're being lied to mm -hmm. and being told things that are not true? And that's a very important thing to, to teach young students mm -hmm. as they're heading off into the world, like to be able to discern the yeah, difference. Yeah, to be able to filter it out. And then the, 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 yeah, the last part of the, the course is finding the truth. And the question really is, is there such a thing as truth or absolute mm -hmm. truth? Or, or is it all relative? You know, how do we, yeah, there's a, there are ways of looking at things that are, challenging and, and necessary and learning to think critically is, is vital fantastic yeah I've, I've tied my brain in knots actually <laughs> 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 trying to work this out but, um yeah um are we going to wrap it up i i was when we're we going to finish with the uh... yeah it'd be nice to bookend our discussion with a, a second reading from the book maybe if there's a piece where it introduces one of the inhabitants. Wonderful. This is, I have a short reading from chapter seven, which is called Her Unforgivable Beauty. Okay. And um, in this moment, the caretaker of the estate who lives in the house is remembering a moment from his childhood. So please forgive any mispronunciations. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan had been taught that words only led to trouble. His own father reared five children alone and rarely said a word. Jonathan, the youngest, only just remembered his mother. She died in childbirth, both she and the child, when Jonathan was only four or perhaps five. The priests came around, but Jonathan's father would have none of it. 
to save the cost of the bellman, to ring the bell for the dead, Jonathan's father borrowed the deed bell and had the boy stand outside in the rain, ringing until late since the dark skies made it hard to tell when the sun had truly gone down. Jonathan held tight to the bell with both hands and rang it loud. He kept his mouth shut tight, but let the rain fall on his face so his tears would go unnoticed. Except for an occasional sob that escaped the prison of his lips, little boy did not make a sound. He knew, they all knew, that speaking in their father's house only made mischief. It was a silent home unless his father found fault, and then there was only the sound of a switch. For any grievance, the children were punished with a swift, hard beating, but near never a word came with it. The most brutal whipping would be the answer to any question about their mother, or even the mention, the whisper of her. They kept their wishes, their hushes, and held their tongues. His father had burned the small gifts his wife had left her children, a ribbon, a cloth doll, a wooden spoon, the drawings she had made for them with the scraps of coal upon scraps of wood. He made the rest of her disappear, except for the children she left him. They all understood that day Jonathan's mother died was the day she had abandoned them, left them all alone. The man never spoke of the loss, neither did his children unless they were asking for the switch. There were rules and the children did not need to be reminded. Every day they were up by dawn and worked until dark, rain or shine, warm or cold, all of them. Complaining was not done on any account. You did as you were taught. That was the rule. This love is so uh, evocative, Eden. It's um, beautifully written yeah. and be- beautifully read as well. Um, it's given me the shivers, that. Thank you so much. You could have, yeah, sat and listened um, <laughs> for, for ages. Mm. And it makes you, makes you want to read it. Mm. Yeah, me too. For sure. Oh, that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> John is such a real character, you know, all those memories. And, uh, but I also love the, you know, the ambiguity you bring in, you know, he's, he's four or perhaps five, just a little, a little, I suppose, nudge to remind us that the memory right. is as fallible as history, you know. Exactly. And no one really knew things then like that. People didn't celebrate birthdays in the way. No, that's right. Yeah, people didn't point. know sometimes exactly how old they were, did they? You know, mm. so... Um, just to say thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about about ambiguity. How just to close, could you perhaps uh, I'm putting you on the spot here, Eden, but would you be able to say what it mm-hmm. is you think? Um, you know, the ambiguity that you're talking about is exactly, and and why it's important, and uh, and uh, remind us again about the, the the title of the the novel and where we might find out more about you and your work. Um, <laughs> that was a lot, wasn't it? <laughs> of the novel, <laughs> let's see, is uh, 250 Years at Home, mm-hmm. which, you know, I thought, do, do people really want to read something called that after, the, after COVID? You know, maybe I should change the name. <laughs> we've all felt yeah, like we've right, been yeah. there. <laughs> but um, it, it follows, you know, that story that we, we should be able to connect with each unfolding chapter in some way and be able to mm-hmm. read ourselves into the story um, 
and the importance of reading the ambiguity in, in a piece of literature is how we can find our way through it, mm-hmm. how we can journey through that piece of literature mm-hmm. and make it our own. Yeah. Um, and that's you know, what draws us to stories written by other people, mm-hmm. written about other people. Perfectly, perfectly put. Edith, thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.